We always want to be grounded in God's Word, so we want to be able to see it for ourselves. If you don't have a Bible with you, or you don't have a Bible of your own that's easy for you to understand and to use, we'd invite you to take one of ours. We've got plenty. We'll make sure that, that you've got them. So you can just put your hand up. Mr. Todd will make sure that you've got a Bible. Um, we're going to be in Luke chapter 5 today. <clears throat> so I'll give you just a moment. Again, if you, if you need a Bible, if you don't have one, go ahead and stick your hand up. Mr. Todd will hook you up. I need one up front here. give you some some time to be able to look at it. We're in this series we call Dear Theophilus as we've been going through the book of Luke and we'll continue through this gospel. Uh, Dr. Luke is uh, establishing the credibility and the reliability of the faith that had been passed on by the apostles and as he shares this with his friend Theophilus he's sharing it also with us and with the church at large. So as we are um, as we're engaging with this, his purpose is to give us a confident faith, a faith that knows the certainty of what we've been taught. So uh, with that in mind, if you would join me and stand for the reading of our passage today. This is Luke 5. I'll be reading verses 33 to 39 uh, from the 1984 edition of the NIV. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken, <clears throat> excuse me, that the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. He told them this parable, no one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it onto an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, <clears throat> excuse me, and no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for he says the old is better. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. As we work through this text today, it's a fairly short text compared to some of the ones that we've been seeing and what we'll see as we go forward. But it's a, a thought bridge, if you will. It's a connecting point between what Luke is recording for us just prior to this in that Jesus is uh, bringing this good news to outcasts. And what he's about to say in chapter 6 about the, uh, uh, the Son of Man being Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus has come and is introducing something entirely different than what the people of Israel in particular are expecting. And as he does so, all of the old rules no longer apply. That doesn't mean that God's word has changed or that God's expectations are different. God has always had the same expectations. But what God had done previously in the Old Testament was part of a big picture. What Jesus is here saying is, now we're getting the big picture. 
And in light of what God is really doing in this whole thing, all of the other smaller subsets kind of fade to the background. Now, in this setting, Jesus is having a conversation with folks still at, at the setting of Levi's party. So if you'll remember, just backing up a little bit to verse 27, uh, Jesus had gone out and he had seen this tax collector whose name was Levi, also known as Matthew. But his Hebrew name was Levi. Levi is still, he's, he's already heard Jesus preaching. Everybody in the region had heard Jesus preaching. Everybody was familiar with what he was saying. Everybody had heard about his miracles. Jesus is essentially the rock star in the area at this time. That's not what he's going for, but that's what everybody sees. Jesus is amazing. Let's talk about Jesus, 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 all that kind of stuff. But what he's preaching has been repent for the kingdom of God is near. Give up yourself, take hold of God. That's what Jesus has been saying from the beginning. It's not about the miracles, it's about the message and the mission. The miracles are just the calling card to say, hey, listen, what I'm telling you is authoritative. And it demonstrates the authority that Jesus has as the Messiah over both the spiritual and the physical or natural realms. Now, as he comes to Levi, this tax collector, he's still in the middle of his sin. Don't miss that. Jesus has done a couple of physical healings for people who are outcasts, but he he gets to Levi and he has a spiritual healing. Levi is still sitting at his tax collector's booth. Tax collectors were basically the gangsters of the time. They were known for uh, being sellouts to Rome, so the, the Jews hated them. They worked for Rome, they made their money off the backs of their brethren, and so as they're doing this, nobody wanted anything to do with them. Levi's heard the message, but he hasn't turned yet. He must have known, he must have felt some sort of conviction in his heart, but he hadn't acted on it. Because when Jesus sees him and says, follow me, he gets up, he walks away from his job, and the money that he's collected says, I don't need any of that, I'm following Jesus. And he's so taken, he's so wrapped up in this repentance, in this turning from his way to God's way, that he throws a party. Now, when sinners throw a party, guess who comes to the party? Other sinners, right? So Levi is this great sinner, and he throws a party for Jesus that's just filled with all these other great sinners. If you're going to be great at something, sin's probably not the thing to be great at. And they all get together, and Levi isn't just saying, hey, let's come party. He's saying, i got to tell you about this guy that called me away from what I've done. The party is for Jesus. Jesus is the point. <laughs> So Levi, despite his reputation, despite everything that everybody is saying to him, is getting everybody together. Hey, comrades, pals, amigos, bar buddies, let me tell you about this Jesus. And Jesus is right there. So he doesn't have to have some grand explanation. He can say, guys, this is Jesus. Okay, take it away. And Jesus gets to do the talking. Now, among these people gathered around here, whether they're at the party or outside, it's not necessarily clear, but we know that they're present in some way, are religious leaders. 
from the Pharisees sect. That's a particular group. This is the, the really good, pure, uh, moral, upright, pietistic people. They are concerned for the revival of Israel. Their passion is to see Israel turn from their wickedness and their secular ways and to return to the law of God. And so they're very, very strict. You might call them the fundamentalists of their day. They don't do this and they don't do that. And you make sure you do this. And they had this huge list of all the do's and don'ts so that you could be really, really, really right with God. They also had some of John's disciples. You may remember John the baptizer, the guy that we saw early in this book. And he was the forerunner of Messiah. John came to proclaim the word of God to everyone, to call them to repentance, to uh, bind families back together, to turn the hearts of the people back to God. And John's message was the exact same message that Jesus would preach when he begins his public ministry, repent for the kingdom of God is near. John lives in a, in a very extreme way out in the desert. And he's calling people to, to get their lives right, to give their hearts to God, and in so doing to change their behaviors, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And John's followers are very, very disciplined. So Jesus now has his followers at a sin party. It's not a party about sin, but it's a party full of sinners. And so when you're seeing it from the outside, they're like, what? What kind of a guy is this? I thought he was supposed to be the great teacher. He's been teaching in the synagogues. and Here we're seeing him hanging out with crooks and hookers and bad people. And what is going on? And they just can't swallow it. So they say to him, why? Why are you doing this? Their focus at first is who he's hanging out with. And Jesus says, I, I didn't come here to preach to the choir. I didn't come here to, to give medicine to those who are already well. It's the sick that need a doctor. I've come to call sinners to repentance. So Jesus doesn't even get upset about it. He just very gently responds, says, this is what I'm here for. The very next thing they say Right out of the gate here in verse 33. It's like as if they don't even you know, break stride. Well, you know, he, he addressed who he's hanging out with. And they shift the focus away from the people he's with now to the behavior of, of Christ himself and his disciples. And they said to him in verse 33, John's disciples. Now everybody recognizes that John the Baptist was the super preacher before Jesus came in. Everybody's been talking about John. Guy, you know, wild man living out in the desert eating locusts and honey, uh, wearing camel hair and not like a leisure suit. But he's out here, you know, wearing, you know, a very austere wilderness kind of thing. And his disciples are disciplined. Everybody respects John. The masses respect John. Not all of the masses respect the Pharisees. Most people do. Religious people do. But those who are on the outside... They may not feel as good about the Pharisees. It's interesting to me that they lead here with John's disciples. And it's also not really clear who's asking the question. Is it the Pharisees that are asking? Is it John's disciples who are asking? Or is it other people? Not super clear. What we do know is that they're looking at this and they're, uh, they're testing this out. I don't know from this text that they're even accusing Jesus yet. There's something of that in there. 
But it seems that they're still really evaluating who he is. They'll get more upset as we go along. But right now, they're grouped together, John's disciples and the Pharisees, two dramatically different groups who have some very strong similarities. And as they're working through this, John, uh, John's disciples are the first contrast. <clears throat> Excuse me. John's disciples often fast and pray. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But your guys are like party on, dude. They're just living loose. What's going on? What's wrong with your disciples? Why don't you get your people more holy? And Jesus responds very gently to them in verse 34. Can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? Now, for us to really get this, we need to understand the context. When Jesus says this to them, it's in the context of an ancient Jewish wedding. Now, for us today, our focus at weddings is on the bride. And if I've done a wedding for you, uh, then grooms, you know you're kind of an afterthought. Yeah. <clears throat> Not entirely, but, but we all know where the focus is, right? Not so in a Jewish wedding at this time. So at that time, the bridegroom actually pays for the wedding. Not just pays for the wedding, he pays for the feast and the, the festival that goes along with it. Not only that, this is a week-long celebration. This is going on for a week, and you bring in everybody, and you pay for them to basically just celebrate and have a good time. And there's, there's feasting, and there's wine, and there's celebration, and dancing, and singing, and revelry. What the Pharisees and John's disciples tend to look a little bit more like is a funeral. They're a little more serious. It's, we need to be very, very serious about God. And Jesus is saying, listen, there's a time for that. There's a time for funerals. But at a wedding, don't act like it's a funeral. You ruin the wedding. The point now, when the groom is with you, is to celebrate. Because you're celebrating the groom and the bride. The focus here is on the bridegroom. And the purpose of this celebration is to remember what this is all about. As they're looking at this, they're not getting it yet. They're missing the point. And Jesus is refocusing them. That's what this section of Luke 5 is all about. And that's our core reality for today. As we get done with all of this, whatever else you may remember or forget, remember this. Human expectations miss the point of what God is really doing. Human expectations miss the point of what God is really doing. You can hear I'm having a struggle with my voice, so I need you to help me out with this. Raise your voice, be strong with it, and say this with me. Human expectations miss the point of what God is really doing. Now, as, <coughs> excuse me. as we're seeing this, we're going to see some very clear points. I have to admit, I've struggled with this passage for a long time, especially uh, Luke's particular rendering of it. We see it in uh, in Matthew chapter 9 and in Mark chapter 2. But here in Luke, verse 39 is only recorded here. The other Gospels don't have it. And man, i got to tell you, that verse threw me off for the longest time. And 
for whatever reason, there have been a number of newer takes on this, talking about the new wine and the old wine and so on. And, and man, sometimes we just torture the scriptures. We make them say all kinds of things because we determine in advance what we want the word of God to say. Our expectations, our framework, colors the text. That's not an appropriate, fitting, God-honoring hermeneutic. In other words, it's not a, a, an appropriate way to interpret the scriptures. We need to look at what does God say through that author to the person receiving it or the audience receiving it, and then from that see the principles that God wants for us to glean from it. But Luke isn't writing to me or you at real life in Three Oaks in 2018. Luke is writing to Theophilus. And as he's doing this, there are principles that he is including that God has seen fit to inspire that we can glean from this and apply to our own lives. There are truths that we need to see. But you and I, now don't miss this now, you and I don't get to determine what those truths are. I don't get to stand up here and decide for you what God is saying. I'm just here to tell you the truth about what he says. I'm basically a herald. I'm the, the kid out on the corner yelling, extra, extra, read all about it. It's the word that we got to get to. So here's, here's what I discovered. I made God's word way more complicated than it was supposed to be. The point is actually really clear once we get through wrestling around with it and we see what he is saying. First off, understanding that human expectations miss the point of what God is really doing. There are going to be three points that, that are not valid where we miss the point. And we want to see what they really are. The first one is that religion isn't the point. Jesus is. Religion isn't the point. Jesus is. Now, this is the concept of the bridegroom being present. You're celebrating the bridegroom. And what Jesus is saying is, look, everything that came before wasn't the bridegroom. But I'm here now. And there will be a time when I will be removed from this place, prophesying his own death. And at that time, at that time, fasting and mourning and severe behavior is the right thing. It's fitting to the time. But as Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, there's a time for everything. A time to mourn, a time to dance. Jesus is saying the wedding's the time to dance. Save the mourning for the funeral. Right now the bridegroom is with you. Religion isn't the point. Jesus is. Now, the, John's disciples and the Pharisees and most religious people throughout history, most of the time, practice some degree of what is known as asceticism. Uh, you may also hear it pronounced asceticism, but it's really asceticism. So as, uh, as we see this, here's what asceticism means. It's a severe self-discipline and avoidance of all forms of indulgence or pleasure, typically for religious reasons. All right? So asceticism is basically disciplining myself to become more spiritual by not having any fun. I want to get rid of the things 
that are enjoyable to, to my mind, to my flesh. I want to get rid of all that stuff, and that will make me more spiritual. This is a pretty typical religious practice for most religions, including uh, those religious Christians. Here's the problem. That was never the point. The Pharisees are looking at the Old Testament and what God for, uh, forbade to his people. And they're adding to it so that we can really impress God, or really more specifically, so that we can not take any chances and not get close to messing up. A couple of years ago, uh, not, not that long ago, we took a journey through the book of Leviticus. Raise your hand if you were here for that, for that journey. All right, good. That's a pretty good amount. So when we went through the, the book of Leviticus, there's a theme verse there in Leviticus 20, 26 that, that God said to Israel, I have separated you out from the people. I've called you apart to be separate so that you could be holy as I am holy. You are to be holy to me. So as God set out his law in the book of Leviticus, there were a lot of very specific commands to be able to instruct his people. Here's the catch. Not a list of things of what to do and not to do. It was that. But the purpose of it was to instruct them about who God is and how he relates to his people. So there were a variety of commands that gave a picture of our sinfulness. And a variety of ceremonial laws to provide for forgiveness and cleansing. None of which was sufficient. And all of which relied on the mercy of God when those acts were performed in faith. If you ever want to take a really good look at how that works, take a look at the book of Hebrews. It's, it's there to connect the dots for someone who understands Jewish law. So in the book of Leviticus, we see this picture of God's holiness and our sinfulness, and there's this divide. That's what the law was for. The law was only there to be able to move us forward. After Jesus is resurrected, Luke 24, he, uh, he is walking down the road with some disciples, unnamed disciples, on the way to a town called Emmaus. And it says that he explains to them all of the scriptures from the law and the prophets, Old Testament law, including Leviticus, about himself. All of these things in the law were pointing to Jesus. Religion, asceticism, doing all of these serious, severe, disciplined things was never the point. It wasn't the point in the Old Testament. It wasn't the point in the New Testament. It's not the point today. What is the point? Say that again. Say it like you mean it. Jesus is the point, always has been, always will be. From Genesis 3.15, when sin entered the world, God said the time will come when the Son of Man, the seed of the woman, will crush the serpent's head. And ever since that time, we have been looking forward, we now look back and forward, because we're in this in-between time in the church period, to the time when the serpent crusher will come and set all things right. The Messiah, here in Luke 5, is there with them. The bridegroom had arrived. It's time to party. It's not time to fast. It's time to celebrate. 
Because good news is being proclaimed to the poor, to the outcast, to the leper, to the paralytic, to the unrepentant sinner. <clears throat> I apologize for my physical limitations today. <clears throat> and even to the unrepentant sinner, Jesus is calling. He's offering God's mercy and grace. Jesus was always the point. It's not about making myself look good. It's not about curbing my desires. It's about finding my true desire in the bridegroom, celebrating in him. Jesus is the point. We see next, Jesus clarifies for them that it's not just that. But the law itself isn't the point. The law isn't the point. The gospel is. The law isn't the point. The gospel is. As I mentioned, when we see the law, it's pointing forward to Christ. But it's a picture of what Christ would do for us. The book of Hebrews tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Jesus becomes the perfect sacrifice for us. And he takes on our sin just the same way those sacrifices in the Old Testament were to take on or to cover the sins of the people. Those were always temporary and had to be offered again and again and again. Jesus offered the sacrifice of himself once. And as Luke has established in the first four chapters, he's both God and man. And he is able to be the sacrifice for us. The law isn't the point. The gospel. And look at, excuse me, look at verse 30, um, 36. He told them this parable. No one can, patch from a, can tear a patch from a new garment and sew it onto an old one. If he does, he'll have torn the new garment. And the patch from the new won't match the old. And no one pours new wine onto old wineskins, into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out. The wineskins will be ruined. Now, I'm not a wine drinker. Maybe that would help my throat. I don't know. But the nature of wine, being a fermented drink, is that there are chemical changes taking place in it. They would store wine at this time, and still, they still do very often in, in many parts of the world. They would store this wine in a container. If you can let your mind maybe picture uh, an Old West canteen, right? This is a, a goat skin uh, sewn together to be able to contain a fluid. So they make these goat skin bottles. And in, this, in the nature of the wine, being in a new wineskin allows that new flexibility. It's soft. It's still uh, able to expand with it. It flexes as needed. But once that wine is fermented and the skin is now set and hardened, it becomes rigid. It doesn't have that flexibility anymore. If you put new wine into an old wineskin, what do you suppose is going to happen? As it begins to change and expand. Well, just like Jesus said, it's going to burst the skin, which ruins the wineskin and obviously also ruins the wine. Neither one of them are, are any good when you try to combine the old and the new. 
he gives the same illustration with a, a piece of cloth. Now, maybe that's easy, easier for us to picture. If I take a, a piece of new, unshrunk garment and I patch an old garment that has been washed and dried and, and has shrunk many times, they're not going to match. And if I patch that old garment with the new garment, what do you suppose is going to happen when it shrinks? It's going to ruin both. Jesus didn't come to fix religion. He didn't come to set things right and kind of patch up and revise the law and revise what the Pharisees were doing. You know, that's the expectation that they had. The Pharisees were excited for Messiah. We don't think about that very often because we have a certain picture of Pharisees. But they couldn't wait for Messiah. Why? Because the Messiah was going to come show everybody that they were right and everybody else was wrong. Really what the Messiah would do would be to come and bring Israel back to God, if you will, to make Israel great again. That was the point. That was, that was what they were hoping for. They had this blend in their mind that the Messiah, in bringing their version, now they wouldn't have thought of it that way, but in keeping with their expectation, he would make their nation great and restore the glory and focus their attention on God as they understood God. What they were missing out on was Messiah saying, listen, you've got to throw away your old expectations because you don't even know. You're missing the point completely. Let me show you the real thing. You can set all that other stuff aside. You can leave your religion at home because I want to show you the reality of what God is really doing. And it's bigger than you ever imagined. If they were to try to take that religion and stick Christianity inside of it, not only have they distorted the religion, but they have destroyed the nature of Christianity. That's Christ's point. That's what he's trying to say. The law was never the point. You can't take a little bit of law and a little bit of gospel, a little bit of grace and a little bit of works and mix it together and act like that's going to work. That's not how it works. And Paul goes to great lengths to, to show us that uh, in the New Testament. In fact, let's, uh, let's take a look at um, Galatians chapter, well, let's start with Galatians chapter 3. I got a lot of scriptures I want you to look at today, and I'm going to skip some of them and let you look at them on your own. You know, I get a little bit excited when we start flipping pages. <clears throat> We're starting Galatians chapter 3. Take a quick glance there, and then we'll, we'll jump ahead to Galatians 5. Now, let me kind of give you an explanation of what Paul's writing about. The Galatian church, one that, that Paul was involved in, and uh, as, <coughs> as this church received the gospel, they started out with this passion for Jesus. They, they had the life of the Spirit in them, and it was awesome. But along the way, 
they began to become influenced by folks who were known as Judaizers, uh, Christians who were bringing the Jewish law back. This is a Justin Timberlake thing, maybe. They're bringing the law back. And so as they're, that was just for you. Let me catch it. Um, as they are bringing this back to say, look, to honor God, we need to still be circumcised. We still need to keep the Jewish traditions. And Paul is saying, um, wait a minute, hold up. He's very gentle here. Notice how he starts out. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like, <clears throat> excuse me, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Another rendering, uh, your, your NIV might say, are you trying to, after starting with the Spirit, are you trying to finish with this human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law? Or because you believe what you heard? Jump ahead to chapter 5. Continuing the thought, he's had some things in between, but he's continuing the same thought with the same people. He says, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free, in verse 1. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, in other words, if you let yourselves be pulled into trying to keep all the religious trappings. If you get fooled into thinking that your observation of ritual and ceremony and your observable morality is the point, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obliged to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. But by faith, we eagerly await, <clears throat> but by faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The law isn't the point. The gospel is. The good news of Jesus Christ. Because religion isn't the point. Jesus is. He is the perfect representation of God. The invisible God made visible in the flesh for us. But Jesus is now and has always been supreme over all things. So because Jesus is the point, the gospel is the point. Jesus is the gospel. That's the reality that we need to look at. Oh, I was going to skip it, but I can't. Let's turn to Colossians. This was actually under that first point. Religion isn't the point Jesus is. If you're in Galatians, turn to the right just a little bit. We'll get to the book of Colossians. <clears throat> 
Colossians chapter 1, starting with verse 15. I hope, I, I just, I really hope that as we're reading this, you will begin to get a little bit of a glimpse at, as to why I can't skip this. I, I, I just can't not get fired up about this because he's the center of it all. It's all about him. And I need to let go of me, let go of my expectations, let go of my priorities, and embrace the reality that everything in the universe hinges on Jesus Christ. Everything in my life, in your life, everything that, that seems beyond you, all of it hinges on Jesus Christ. Check this out now. Here's what Paul writes. He's speaking of Christ. This is verse 15 and following. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile himself to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Can any amount of religious action possibly compare with this? Jesus is everything. And not only is he everything, but God has chosen to reconcile wretched, horrific sinners like me to himself. Everything wrong in this world? Everything. ISIS, natural disasters, cancer, everything wrong in this world starts in my heart. All of that exists because sin exists in the world. And it's not just that Eve got tricked and Adam bit the fruit and we all died. No, it's that that sin from them is in us. I don't know how to express to you the overwhelming shame that is so right for me to feel when I look at myself before a holy God. We talked about that recently as Peter saw Jesus for who he is. He fell at his knees and said, Lord, go away from me. I, I'm a sinful man. We looked at Isaiah chapter 6 and Isaiah gets a vision of God in the temple and the angels crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah says, I, I'm ruined because I'm a sinner. If any of us think we have something to offer God, we are so delusional, it's not even worth speaking about. There's no way that you could ever be good enough. There's no way that I could ever be good enough. And right now I'm standing on this stage talking to you about the Lord. But in the quiet moments, I've got to look at myself in the mirror, and I know me. If there's any possibility that I could blow this, I would blow it a thousand times over. I 
can't keep up with that. I can't be religious enough to impress God. Religion isn't the point. Jesus is. The law isn't the point. That's what he's saying to the Galatians. The gospel is. That combination of these concepts finds itself in the very next section of uh, Colossians 1. Starting in verse 21, here's what he says. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you, what's that next word? To present you holy in his sight, without blemish, free from accusation. This is about simply trusting that Jesus, who is everything, the center of it all, made himself your sin so that he could make you God's righteousness. What a powerful reality. And yet, sadly, somehow in the midst of this, we don't want it. God is offering us this gift. And we don't want it. We do. Our hearts thirst for it. Our hearts cry out for it. Everything in us is hungry for God. But we're used to our way of doing things. See, we start out used to our sin and our, our darkened way of reasoning. And so truth seems foreign to us. You're so used to darkness, light is harsh to the eyes. But when we are used to religion, when we're used to being good moral people, that somehow is more palatable to us than the free gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, when I'm religious, I can rationalize things. I can set up a certain amount of hoops to jump through to deal with my own sin. I can hide from that sin. And I can look at your sin. That's way easier. I'd much rather look at your sin than look at my sin. And if I can tell myself that I'm doing right, and I've got a, a list of things that I can measure myself against, some of you are list makers, you know, you can check off your daily to-do list, you know you've done something, right? If I can do that with my relationship with God, that's easy. When I worked in retail, it was hard for me to know, you know, why I was so tired at night. I'd work an eight or 12 hour day, I'd come home and I'm exhausted. I'm like, man, I don't even know what I did just worn out. When I was working as a roofer, it was easy. I show up to the job site, here's an ugly roof. We tear it off, we put on a new roof. I can check it off, I can see it. See, re religion is kind of like that. Here's what you do, check, we're good. Here's what you do, check, we're good. Here's what you don't do, okay, stay away from that, it's a win. Relationships are messy. Raise your hand if you're married. Any of you guys married? Any of you do everything right in your marriage? Uh. 
But do you realize if you did, you can say everything right to your mate and it can still be offensive to them. You can do all of the things, check all the boxes, and your wife can still feel unappreciated. Relationships are messy. Parents, raise your hand if you're a parent. Raise your hand if you've got grown kids. Any of you got grown kids? Did you do everything right as a parent? Did you read all the books and learn all the things so you could check off the list? You know, even if you did, your children have their own brain. Sometimes you wonder if they have one at all. But yeah, your children have their own brain. Even my own kids are laughing at that because they've got kids of their own now. And they're going to make their own choices. Relationships are messy. Something about us wants the easy part of being able to check the boxes. So I can know, hey, I'm, I'm good, I'm right. But God says, look, it really isn't about what you want. I don't know if you know this, but it's not about you. It's about me. Here's our last thing, our last point of these three. Preference isn't the point. Preference isn't the point. Truth is. Preference isn't the point. Truth is. Religion isn't the point. Jesus is. The law isn't the point. The gospel is. Preference isn't the point. Truth is. This is why Luke includes that last verse of the chapter. Verse 39. <clears throat> no one after drinking old wine wants the new. For he says the old is better. I wrestled with this for a long time because I used to think he was saying that the old wine is better than the new wine. And in a sense that would be true and that it's developed and the new wine is not. And there, you know, as I begin to study this, I see many renderings say the old is good, not better. You could make a case for either one in the translation. But the point here is that the person who is used to the old wine is not going to prefer the new wine. They're going to be shocked by the taste of it. They're used to that mellow, aged thing. And then they get the new wine, and it's like, yeah. But more than that, you don't know what the new wine's going to be. And we have a fear of the unknown. That new vintage, that new wine that's not fully fermented, not fully cured, not come all the way around to what it's going to be yet, that could be the best vintage ever. That might be the best wine that you will ever have. But we don't like the change. We have a fear of the unknown. That's the point. That's the point he's making here. You're used to this. John's guys, the Pharisees, you're used to a certain way of looking at things. And that religious way of approaching it is more palatable and easier because you're used to it than what I'm bringing to you. Religion, more palatable than relationship. It isn't better, but I might say to myself it's better. It might seem better. We have the same kind of issues today that Jesus had in those, time, in those days. People look at your disciples, so to speak, and they're imperfect. Well, what about that person from real life? 
boy, they, they clear. That's what Jesus looks like? Mm. Well, I know what they said when they got mad. They had those words they couldn't keep in. Uh, I saw them hanging out with some really sketchy characters. They still got habits that, you know, I thought if they were Christians, they wouldn't do that anymore. That's never been the point. Jesus doesn't ever show up to any of, in any of the gospel stories. If you don't believe me, stick around, keep coming back. We'll go all the way through the gospel of Luke, see if you find it. Where he says, okay, here's your list of do's and don'ts. And if you can mark off all these things, then you're good. In fact, he says the opposite. Throw your list away. Find yourself in me. And when you find yourself in me, I'll take care of the doing. It's not about what you and I think we have to do. It's about what Christ has done for us. In Luke 5, he hasn't done it yet. So he's speaking to them gently about it. As they go along, they'll become hardened against it. John's disciples will take the same information and they'll springboard forward to Christ. The other religious leaders will take that information and they'll say, nope, we're holding on to our old wineskins. It takes faith to be able to embrace the new wine because you don't know what it's going to be. Jesus is leading us on the greatest adventure of all. But we have to embrace it. In order to be able to take hold of what God is doing, I have to let go of what I expect Him to do. Human expectations miss the point of what God is really doing. Why does this matter? Well, it matters for them because they hadn't heard the gospel yet. This is kind of a big deal. So what Jesus is doing is a brand new thing. Now, it's part of what God had always, not part of, it is what God had always been doing from the beginning. But what God had done up to this point was a springboard. The law was given to instruct us, to set the stage, to make it clear how sinful we are. The law brings death. Well, in reality, death was already here. We were already dead in our sins before we ever heard the command. The law is essentially the executioner. It's the judge. It points out the death that is already in us. The law only condemns. It never justifies because of our sin. That doesn't mean the law is bad. It means the law has a purpose. And the law's purpose is to be a sword that divides even between soul and spirit. The law's purpose is to point out the blackness of my heart. That I am swallowed up in darkness. And I got nothing to offer God. The gospel, however, this has always been the point. This is the grace that he's been offering. From the beginning, God has been moving to redeem his people. Jesus is the culmination of everything God has done. Everything God is doing. And everything God will do. Here in this passage, it matters because he's establishing the good news that God is saving undeserving, irredeemable people like me by his grace. So what difference does it make in my daily walk? Well, when I understand this, when I get a, a grasp of it, 
when I understand that, that God loves sinners despite our sinfulness, I find myself set free in Christ. I can experience the joy that God intends for me, the joy and the freedom that is only found in a personal relationship with the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I have to let go of my efforts to fix myself. I have to let go of my expectations of what a Christian looks like. God is doing something bigger. I have to drop the pretense, the striving, and the fear of failure. God is doing something bigger. The bridegroom is here, and he has invited me into his celebration. All that remains is for me to accept the invitation and to join in. I want to invite you to do that right now. Now I know most of you here, we've had personal conversations, most of us. And many of you here have accepted that invitation. And yet, even among those who have accepted the invitation and are Christ's followers, we still strive so often for our own version of morality for our own efforts and religious doings to try to justify our behavior, to try and make us feel better about ourselves. Let it go, man. For many of us here, it's inevitable in a room this size that, that many of us have not received Christ. And I'm here to tell you, you don't have to, you can't fix yourself to clean yourself up so that you can come and deserve this. No one ever deserves this. It is unmerited favor. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says it's by grace you've been saved. And we take hold of that grace through faith. That's how we open the present that he offers us. By grace. Through faith. And even the faith is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not of works. It's not of effort. It's not of religion. So there's no room for boasting. There's also no room for fear. No room for feeling like I'm not good enough and Jesus can't forgive me. I get it, I'm a sinner, I know, but I've gone too much, I've gone too far. No room for that. He calls us all. Won't you just let go of everything? Take hold of Jesus. He's already done everything that can ever be done to make you right with God. What God is doing is so much bigger than religion. There's no comparison whatsoever. It's more than we can imagine. And as we go through the rest of the Gospel of Luke, we're going to see Jesus shattering expectations. Shattering the religious trappings. Pointing out by his actions and by his teaching that what he's bringing is not a new religion. Christianity is not now, nor has it ever been, about religion. It's not about a church hierarchy. It's not about labels. It's not about performance. It is about a person, the person of Jesus Christ, and finding ourselves in Him. I want to invite you to do that because it is the most amazing life. I don't mean life now. I mean life that starts now and lasts forever. Praise God.
for his grace to us in Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, it is astonishing to me to see that though you have had one plan, there is only plan A with you. From the beginning to the end, from before the earth was formed, your plan was already in place. Before I ever committed one sin, your plan for Jesus to take that sin was already in place. I can't comprehend it all, Lord. Your ways are so much higher than mine. I won't pretend to. Father, I pray that you would help each one of us here to give up pretending, to throw away old wineskins, to not try to put religion and the gospel together, just ruining two garments that way. Thank you for your law and the place that it has in your story of redemption. But Father, we thank you so much more for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Lord, knowing that you are able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, that we have not seen nor heard what you have in store for those who love you, we give you all the glory and honor. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.